One of the uh, great comedians from the past century was a man named Nathan Birnbaum. Of course, no one knows him by that name. He's better known by his stage name. It was George Burns. If you're a certain age, you're smiling right now. Uh, George Burns had been born in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. His father worked as a part-time cantor and a jacket maker. His mother was a seamstress. Burns liked to say that he was famous because he lived to 100 years old. But in fact, he had more than enough talent to work nearly uninterrupted in show business for 85 years. And when he was in his 90s, one of his most famous routines went something like this. He says, sure, I've gotten old. I've had two bypass surgeries, a hip replacement, I have two new knees. I fought prostate cancer and diabetes, I'm half blind. I can't hear anything quieter than a jet engine. I take 40 different medications. I have bouts with, bouts with dementia, poor circulation. I can't feel my hands or my feet. I can't remember if I'm 85 or 92. I've lost all of my friends, but thank God, I still have my driver's license. Now, he was the ninth of 12 children and liked to say that his family was so poor that they couldn't even afford to buy dirt to be, to be dirt poor. But then he would pause and finish, but I couldn't have been happier. Sure, we didn't have food, he said, but I had everything I needed. I think of this because it tells us the very same idea in different ways that there are things to be grateful for. Sometimes we don't do that at all. In fact, we do the exact opposite. Sometimes we think of things that we don't have. You might remember the experiment where researchers painted an entire wall completely white, except for one small dot in the middle of it. It was black. Then they would ask people to walk by it and tell them what they saw. And almost everyone, I mean almost everyone, said the exact same thing. They didn't say, I see a white wall. They said, I saw a black dot. Never mind the fact that the dot was one one-hundredth of the wall. That is all they saw. A tiny black dot on a huge white wall. And you and I do the same thing with our lives. The next time someone cuts in front of you when you're driving, do you say, you know, I live in one of the most wealthiest countries in the world. I have a home. I have people who love me. I'm driving a car with paved roads. I have food in my refrigerator. I am just so grateful to God for all the blessings that I have. So it's really no big deal this person cut in front of me. No. You say that belief just cut me off. We all see the black dot on the wall. By reflex, our culture today apart from some sentimental acknowledgements, is that most people disavow daily commitments to religion. But the most daily fundamental religious attitude is gratitude. It is to be grateful. Religion steers us to see our lives as saturated, overflowing, with things to be grateful for, guiding that even in the most difficult moments that there are things that we can be grateful and thankful for. Sometimes it is the gratefulness of being alive, because with life I can see and experience all the wonderful things that I have been blessed with. And sometimes 
Our gratefulness is found in having survived or gone through a difficult and painful moment. You know, it's interesting to note that the word Judaism did not exist until the 19th century, until the 1800s. Its beginning was in the middle 1800s in Germany when the Jewish community was trying to argue that the Jews believed in something of a religion just like their non-Jewish neighbors did. In other words, the Christians have religion and so we have religion. And the word Judaism was born. But what holds and binds Jews together is much, much, much more than religion. It's many things. It's a system of laws, a repository of history and tradition, a web of culture and language. And over the past years, people have been talking about a gratitude movement. And yet the first word that Jews pray traditionally when they wake up in the morning, the first word is grateful. They express gratitude for being alive with the prayer that every Jewish child is taught, grateful I am. And thousands of years ago, the earliest name that we gave ourselves, the name for a Jew, was Yehudi, which actually comes from the same root as the word, which means to thank. Judaism is one movement method to cultivate a deep, pervasive appreciation for where we are, for what you have, and what you are with. I say this knowing that I do not know many of your lives. I don't know what challenge you may be facing or losses that you have faced or what setbacks you are going through. And yet I still say that no matter what the challenges you have or have been through, there are things in your life that you should be grateful for. If you are alive in the time of modern dentistry and medicine, if you have clean water to drink, if you have books that you want to read, if you vote for the people that you wish to rule, if you say the words, whatever words come into your mind and you speak them freely, and yet, if you are here and can experience all of those things, even if you know that all this is true, and once you leave this synagogue and walk outside and find your car with a flat tire, and I'm no different, well, actually, I live across the street. But I'm no different if you have a flat tire. I don't say, I feel so blessed, God, to have wheels in a car. I say unprintable things. But I do try to remember throughout my day just how fortunate I am. And this is why Jewish tradition asks that we recite, Me'abrachot bayom, a hundred blessings every day. It's a lot easier than it sounds. There are blessings everywhere to be said in our daily prayers and over our food, but that's the point. There are blessings everywhere. We are not only asked, but commanded to see them and give them each a name, and sometimes especially in the smallest things. The Torah reading for this morning has a number of threads, but in truth there's only one major arc to the story. Spies are sent out to inspect the land of Israel. Rabbinic literature is seeded with many questions, such as why the spies are sent out at all. After all, if God promises them a land, surely it must be good. But this all aside, the 12 spies are sent, one from each of the 12 tribes. One each of these 12, we are told their names, 
in the hope that one thing is clear to us all, what they came from. Each of these 12 spies were plucked from the gentry of the Israelites, each a leader of their own tribe, each born with the gilding of privilege and fortune. They travel into the land, north, south, west, and east, seeing the land in its fullest, and in their return, they bring a damning report. Yes, it is beautiful and bountiful, they say, but it cannot be had by us. The people who live there are too fierce. Their cities are too strong. We are too weak. And the people believe them. The story winds to tell us that generation would be condemned to wander the desert and only their children would cross the Jordan River and enter the land. And it is asked why the Torah specifies so carefully the families of each of these spies, where they came from. And it seems to me, if I can echo the thoughts of a 16th century Bohemian rabbi known as the Maharal, Rabbi Yehuda Lowy, he wrote that we have little to do, that what we are has little to do with what or where we came from our ability to see ourselves capable and worthy of believing the world is something ripe to be plucked and drawn from, of knowing our footsteps matter, isn't something that is given to you. No matter what all of us have, we are all inclined to see the black dot on the wall. Gratitude, which is so deeply connected to hope, is something that we must nurture within ourselves. No one is given it. As Appelfeld, the Holocaust writer, once said, we don't see the world as it is. We see the world as we are. To see the world better, we need to become better. The Regenstadt was unique amongst the Nazi concentration camps because the Regenstadt actually was a fake city, a ruse to fool the world, in particular the Red Cross. The Nazis built a Reichenstadt to mislead the Red Cross into thinking that the Jews were being cared for humanely and well. But behind the facade, it was a living hell. 200,000 people passed through there, and of the 15,000 of them were children. To the best of our knowledge, only 132 of those children were known to have survived. Years after the war, people began to find poems in children's drawings that had been in, in, hidden inside mattresses and stuffed in cracks between the walls of the barracks. Many of these poems and drawings, first collected by Yad Vashem, Israel's Holocaust Museum, were later published in a book called, I Never Saw Another Butterfly. One of the poems in that book is called The Bird Song, that they're in the worst place on earth. This is what some young girl or boy once wrote, he doesn't know the world at all, who stays in his nest and doesn't go out. He doesn't know what birds know best, nor what I want to sing about, that the world is full of loveliness. When dewdrops sparkle in the grass and the earth's a flood with morning light, a blackbird sings upon a bush to greet the dawning after night then I know how fine it is to live. Try to open your heart to beauty. Go to the woods someday and weave a wreath of memory there. 
And then, if the tears obscure your way, you'll know how wonderful it is to be alive. And if it was true for them, how much truer for us. Shabbat Shalom.